It's good to be back. I consider this almost my birthplace to be here and uh, to be back with you folks. Thank you for what you mean to me. I wish Deb was with me, but uh, uh, this is the third of ten preaching engagements I have this week in three states in four churches. So she said, I'm staying at home. Uh, but I'm glad to be here. She sends her love. Uh, I hope you've got a copy of God's Word tonight. And if you'll take it and get ready to open it with me. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a pastor in, in uh, Texas. Uh, and uh, he was telling me the story. He was talking about uh, when... He was in seminary being in a group, a discipleship group that they were in and they were, they were studying and, uh, all the guys that were there, he said there was one guy there who was not going into the ministry, uh, but was going into business and has become very successful in the business world. Uh, in fact, so successful that he's really traveling around the world and decided that the best thing he could do would move he and his family down to Monterey, Mexico. Now, if you know anything about Monterey, Mexico, it is one of the business centers. His company was doing a lot of business with several companies that happened to be stationed in Monterey, Mexico. So he decided, let's just go down. Let's find us a piece of land. Let's build a house there, and um, it'll be a lot easier on us. We'll do that for a number of years, and then we'll move back to the States. So he said this friend of his went down there. They found a piece of property that they liked right out of Monterey, came back home, got an architect, drew up plans for the house, found a contractor in Mexico, a Mexican contractor who would build the house, got the plans off to him. And he told him, he said, now listen, for the next nine to 10 months, I'm traveling literally around the world on business. I can't get here. So I will get back about time to move in the house. The time passed by, he came back, picked up his wife. He said, let's fly down, let's make sure the house is ready. So they flew down to see the house that they had built. And he said, when we drove up, we were stunned. He says, it was gargantuous. He said, we had no idea this guy would build a house this big. And he said, when we got there, we looked. He said, the front door was big enough you could drive an RV into the thing. And they began to think, what in the world is going on? How in the world are we going to live in a house this big? So he thought to himself, what, what happened? What went wrong? And what he discovered was this. He'd gotten an American architect who drew the thing in feet. And he handed it off to a Mexican contractor who read it in meters. And a foot is 3.28 meters. He said when he walked into the foyer, it was like the grand lobby of the Ritz-Carlton in downtown Dallas. He said instead of 10-foot tall ceilings, they were 32 feet tall. He said we walked into a closet. It was like walking into a storage shed. He said the bathrooms were like a day spa. He said they literally had put the tubs in the floor like swimming pools. He said, we walked into the master bedroom and off in the back there was a king size bed that looked like a mat that was just laying on the floor. He said, what had happened to us was this, that we had an architect who gave us the plans, but the builder read them incorrectly. Here's the blueprint right here. Brother Kelly, I want to tell you. The day in which we live, I talk to a lot of Christians. Talk to one on the elevator coming down at the hotel. And when I talk to them, I get the impression they've read the blueprint incorrectly. I'm in a lot of churches. I preach in a lot of places. I go to a lot of cities and meet a lot of pastors. And I begin to listen to what they're promoting and what they're doing and what they're sponsoring and what their drive is, and what they're leading their churches to do. And I begin to ask myself the question, what in the world have they read in this book that has escaped me? And then I begin to ask the question of myself, have they even read it themselves? 
I'm disturbed and greatly concerned, not about what the world believes about this book, but about what the people that are sitting in front of me believe about this book. I want you to take your copy of God's Word tonight, and I want you just to get to the middle of the book of Isaiah. Now, I know that somebody preached out of Isaiah yesterday. What's today? Monday? Sunday? Uh, I preached out of Isaiah chapter 40 yesterday as well. In fact, I preached out of it in the last two weeks. But I want you to go to Isaiah, just get to Isaiah 55, and I'll catch up with you and tell you where I want you to go. I'm concerned that in the church today, we don't have a clue what salvation is all about. We don't know what the gospel is about. We've got an entire new generation that has grown up in a postmodern America that they don't even have a reference to the Word of God. We've got to share the gospel in America today the same way you would share the gospel if you were in Calcutta, India tonight. We've got to hold this up and say, this is a Bible. It is made up of 66 different books. Let me begin to share with you what it says in the very beginning. That's the country we live in tonight. That's America uh, today. And I'm concerned that those of us that sit in the pew who say we're saved really have no concept of what it means to be saved. But this is the blueprint. And we're going to go to the blueprint. God's word has been very clear. Very clear all through from the Old to the New Testament what salvation is all about. That's why tonight I'm not taking you to the New Testament to talk about salvation. I'm going to take you to the Old Testament because God makes it clear even there what salvation is. He comes and he calls us to himself to receive that free gift of salvation. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. By the way, there are a lot of folks that believe that there were two Isaiahs. A lot of folks believe there were three Isaiahs. Um, uh, To that, I say, um, God has no trouble speaking the future to his prophet. Uh, So in Isaiah chapter 55, if you want a historical context, uh, this is being written for that generation that is 150 to 160 years in the future for Isaiah. He is writing to a generation that will not come about for 150 to 160 years. But he's writing to them about God's salvation. Now listen to what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money come, buy and eat, come buy wine, milk, without money and without cost. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying, come to that which is life. Come to that which is sustains life. Come to water. You're thirsty. Come to water. You have no money. Come and buy. Come and buy wine. Come and buy that which is joy. Come and buy milk. That which strengthens. That which builds up. Come and buy bread. Uh, that which nourishes life and keeps life and sustains life. He says, you come to it. It's yours, but you don't have to buy it. It's free. Come and get it. Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? He says, why in the world do you spend your life constantly going and investing all your energy, all your money, all your time, all your strength in what will never bring you life? He says, if you will simply come to me, I've got it. It's free. That's grace. Right here in the heart of the Old Testament, look, right there, grace. It's free. It's yours. Come get it. Now you say, well, where's it going to come from? Well, just go back uh, to chapter 53. And in chapter 53, what you've got there is you've got this one who is going to bring your salvation, purchase your salvation. Chapter 53, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, now just notice this. He will see his, he will see those who will be born out of this. We would say born again out of this. Who is he? He will prolong his days. Who is he? 
And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Who is his? As a result of the anguish of his soul. Who is this? He will see it and will be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I sat one day for three hours at lunch with Rabbi Ben Yehuda. That's the great, that's the grandson of the original Ben Yehuda who when in 1941, they came back, uh, in 1946, they came back and they restored Israel, was the one who saw to it that Hebrew would become the official language of the new nation. It was his grandson who sat there, and we got to Isaiah 53 because I wanted to share with him Christ. And as I sat with Rabbi Ben Yehuda, I said, who is this? He says, it's Israel. I said, Rabbi, when did Israel die for me? I'm told that the one here died for my transgressions. That's singular in the Hebrew, Rabbi. You know Hebrew grammar better than I do, but even I know this is singular. It's not the nation. It's a person out of the nation. It's Jesus Christ. He looked at me and he said, you may be right. I said, don't count your eternity on maybes. You've got to know him personally. Where does that salvation come from? That in chapter 55 is free. It comes from this one in chapter 53 who's called the suffering servant. Well, what is that salvation? Now, I'm getting to what I want to preach. I'm going to preach in a minute. I'm getting to what I want you to see. What is that salvation? What does it mean to be saved? What is involved in our salvation? How can I explain? What am I to share with somebody that salvation is? And what does salvation do? Well, now look with me in chapter 54. And I want you to begin with me there. We're going to look at this unusual chapter that's divided into three parts. It's a preacher's it's a preacher's passage right here. It naturally divides into three points. And that's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to see what's involved in salvation. And what's involved in salvation is what God does with our failures, our sins. First of all, I want you to see this, that God relocates all your failures. Now begin with me in verse 1 of chapter 54. And let me explain to you what he's doing. He's going to use three metaphors here. He's going to speak to Israel, to whom Isaiah is writing, who will be in Babylonian captivity when this uh, is speaking to them. And he's going to compare them, Israel, to three different things. The first thing he compares them to is a woman who cannot have children. Now listen to what he says. He says, shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have never travailed. Now that may be one of the oddest passages you'll ever come across if you don't understand what he's doing. What he's doing is this, the prophet... The prophet under the leadership of the Holy Spirit has taken this image of the most humiliated person in his day. Now in Isaiah's day, in that day, in that time, in that culture, a woman had one use and one use only. Now listen, I'm just telling you, I'm I'm telling you the background of this. She had one use and one use only, and that use was to give birth, not to just a child, but to a male child. That's what a woman was to do. And for a woman not to do that was seen as being absolute horror for her life. She had no purpose. She had no use. There was nothing but embarrassment and humiliation and hurt and woundedness. Do you remember how Sarah finally told Abraham, take Hagar and have a child with her? Have a son with her? 
how humiliating and hurtful must it be for a woman to look at her husband and say, I have listened to you for all these years talk about a child. And I can't give you one. Go to that woman and have a child with her. It must be the most desperate situation that a woman could ever be in. So Isaiah looks and he says, what is the most desperate, the most hurtful, the most humiliating situation you could be in? It would be a woman in his day who could not give birth to a child. And so he takes that and listen to what he tells her. You shout for joy. You break forth into joyful shouting. You cry aloud. All three Hebrew verbs there are related to singing. It's fascinating. When he comes and he says, shout for joy, it's literally sing for joy. Break forth into joyful shouting. Break forth into joyful singing. Cry aloud. Shout aloud. Sing aloud. That's what he's saying. He's saying to this woman who's in the most uh, desperate situation she could imagine because she could not have a child. He says to her, listen, you get up and you sing praise full of joy to God in heaven. You would say, why in the world would he say that? He's saying this. He's saying because God has taken that deep humiliation, that wound, that hurt, and he has relocated that over to this person in chapter 53. That's what he's done. That's what he did for you. That's your sin. Would you like to get up here and tell us the most embarrassing sin that you've ever committed? Anybody want to get up here tonight? Do I have a witness? Anybody want to testify? Come on, come on and tell us the most embarrassing sin that you've ever found yourself in. You think about it and you almost turn red thinking about it. You think about it and it humiliates you. You think about it and you think of the woundedness in your own heart because of that. But listen, you can stand up and sing tonight at the top of your lungs because that sin and all the other sin in your life has been relocated from your life to Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. (laughs) He comes and he says, there should be that personal expression. You ought to shout. If y'all were Pentecostal, y'all would be shouting. (laughs) He says, there should be that personal expression. When you realize what this person in chapter 53 has done, what God has done with my sin. But then he comes. Now listen, I'm speaking to the church now because this becomes corporate. He says there should be a corporate expectation. When you come to realize what Jesus Christ has done in your life and the power of the gospel, he says this. Now listen, I'm going to pick it back up in verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now he's speaking to a nation, but there's a word there for us. He's speaking to the nation corporately, but listen, he is speaking a word to the church as well. And what he says to the church is this, don't you expect that this gospel that takes all of your sin and relocates it from you to this Savior in chapter 53 is good enough news that when people hear it, they're going to come to Jesus Christ. They're going to come to it. Then he says, why aren't you enlarging your border? Why aren't you enlarging your tent? Why aren't you lengthening your cords? Why aren't you strengthening your pegs? Why aren't you sparing not in doing what you should do as a church to make ready for those who are going to be saved? Let me tell you something, church. (laughs) We don't think like that. Oh, Lord, no. This crazy preacher's in here talking about a building program already. Look, I'm just reading to you the word here. Can I take you back to a passage? I'm almost hesitant to do this, but go back with me to first. Put your finger there in Isaiah chapter 54. Go back to First Chronicles chapter 4. And just listen to a little prayer by a little known guy in the Old Testament. Brought up a lot of stir several years ago when uh, Bruce Wilkerson wrote a book on this. 
but listen to it. Just listen to the prayer. I'm not going to make anything out of it, but just listen to it. Now, Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm that it may not pain me. Did you hear what he prayed? God, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand be with me and that you keep harm from me. You ever prayed that? Let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed this for your church? You ever prayed for God to enlarge your church? Well, no, we don't, we don't want anybody else in our class. Well, pr- pray that he'll enlarge and start another class then. Huh? Are y'all all right? Do you ever pray this for your church? I do. When I pass churches, driving like I did today, and I'll go past the church, and I'll look at it, and I'll say, Lord, if they're honoring you and preaching your word, enlarge that church. Grow that church. And bless that pastor. Do you ever pray for God to keep harm from your church? You ought to be praying that right now for your pastor. You ought to be praying that for your church as a whole. Every church that's represented here. People ought to be praying for their church. God, grow the church. God, grow it. Do you know the biggest problem in the church today? Is that the staff is spending all its time keeping the current congregation happy. So we can't do anything else other than keep the current congregation happy. Amen. We can't go and witness because we got to settle this person over here because we didn't use the hymn book. God help us. Or I'm not going to do this over here because we don't want that extra addition to the, We don't want any of that stuff. Listen, we've got to just calm down. It's okay. It, it won't cost any. It's not going to be. I took a vote yesterday in my church to build another building. I had a unanimous vote on it. I guess they thought I was just crazy. We just voted. I had a lady come up. We've got four campuses now. I've got the downtown campus. I have a south campus where we're building a church. And uh, God has blessed uh, incredibly with that. I've got a west side campus, Ortega campus. I've got a campus on the University of North Florida uh, where college students are being saved. In fact, we just had a German girl who came over to the University of North Florida from Germany, came out of a Catholic background, got saved. She's been on two mission trips thus far. She hadn't been saved a year. We can't get her to calm down and act like Baptists are supposed to act. (laughs) Do you ever pray that for your church? Listen. This is what we, all of us in our hearts should be doing. We should be thinking, how can we enlarge the place here, stretch out the curtains, spare not, lengthen the cords, and strengthen the pegs here. Because God's got a gospel that is so good, the world hasn't even conceived of it. It's too good to keep quiet. It's too good to keep to ourselves. He's taken your sin and relocated them. He can do that for everybody you know. Let me give you the second thing. Y'all seem to be so worked up about that. Let me just kind of move on in the text. Well, listen, this is what he's going to do. He also reconciles your failures. Now, we talk about reconciliation. We talk about, you know, sometimes you'll hear somebody in accounting say, we've got to reconcile these accounts or we've got to reconcile these books. But let me tell you, reconciliation generally deals with people. And so he comes now and there's a different picture of Israel. No longer is she a woman who cannot bear a child, but now she is a woman who's been unfaithful to her husband. Now, folks, this is the word of God. And let me just tell you what God says to her. And he says, this is your sin. You've committed adultery. He says, for a brief moment, verse 7, I forsook you. He said, it was as if I walked in and opened the door and there you were in the arms of someone else. And he said, at that moment, I forsook. I left. I got in the car and I drove away. He comes in verse 8 and he says, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you. I said, I don't ever want to see you again. I don't ever want to look at you again. I don't ever want to meet up with you again. 
Now, folks, let me tell you something. Do you understand that that's what your sin is like before a holy God? You see, we think our sin is so antiseptic that it is, we, we sin clean, don't we? Our sin is real clean. It's neat. You really can't compare my sin to somebody else's sin. Listen, let me tell you something. The word of God says in James, if you keep the whole law and offend it in one point, you're guilty of it all. That, hey, that's the Bible says that. You're guilty of it all. When God sees us in our sin, when we walk into sin, it's just like a mate walking in and finding their mate in the arms of someone else. If you never thought about sin in those terms, you should. That's how holy God is. And that's how sinful we are. But now listen to what he says. He comes back and he says this, beginning in verse 4. He says, fear not. Don't worry. Hold on. You will not be put to shame. Now I want you to listen to the grace in this. You will not be put to shame. I'm not going to drag you in before a judge with lawyers and stand up before your family and my family and tell them and explain to them what I walked in and saw. I'm not going to put you to shame. This is God speaking to us. And do not feel humiliated. Now, can you imagine a husband or a wife looking at their mate and saying, listen, I don't, I don't want you to ever feel humiliated about what you did. I don't want you to ever think about it. It's never going to be brought up. I'm never going to throw it up into your face. I'm never going to talk about it. I'm never going to deal with it in front of you. You'll never hear another word about this from me again. Can you imagine? Watch. He comes and he says, he says, you will not be disgraced. I'm not going to disgrace you. I'm not going to humiliate you. I'm not going to put you to shame. Are you not glad that God has said to you that your sins I will never bring up again? Well, I don't know about you, but son, that just about make me want to shout. Huh? But now watch this. Listen to what he says right here. You will forget the shame of your youth. He's talking about sin. He's saying, you're going to forget. Now, Brother Kelly, I don't don't know about you, but I'm going to tell you, Satan, he'll throw sin in my life, my past, he'll throw it up to me. You know when he does it? Right when you get, they come up here. Now, see, you folks don't understand that. And we have to stand up here and preach the word of God with Satan constantly bringing our sin to our mind while we're preaching the word of God. But do you hear what he says right here? He says right here, you will forget the shame of your youth. In other words, you'll forget your sin. There is coming a day when I will step out of this life And in less than a split second, I will stand before the Christ who died on a cross for me. And in that moment, as hard as I may try, I will stand there and can stand there for eternity and ponder, what was it? What was it? What was it that I did that put him on that cross? I can't remember my sins. For some reason. Not only does he. Just sit there folks. Okay. Please calm down. Just sit there. You think about that. That there is a day. When you'll stand before Christ. And all the wickedness that you know exists in your own heart. You won't be able to remember. Now that's just good stuff. I don't care what you say. That's just good right there. Listen to what he says. He comes and he says, for that brief moment, verse 7, but with great compassion. Now listen to the words here of compassion. I'll gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now here, he's going to come. He's going to say, he's going to use the word compassion a third time at the end of verse 10. But now listen to what he's doing. He's painting a picture. God is saying, I I want you to think about the most unthinkable thing. 
What is the most unlikely thing in the world to happen? Now watch it what he says. He says, for this is like the days of Noah to me. This is God speaking. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, I've sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. What happened in the days of Noah to the water? What what happened to it? It receded, didn't it? All that water that flooded the world receded. It, It went away. It receded. What stood in the days of Noah when the water receded? What was it that was standing? Look at verse 10. Mountains. Where did the ark rest? Ararat. On the mountains. Now listen to what he says. He says in the days of Noah, what receded was the water. Verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shed. He said there may come a day when the mountains will recede like the waters did in the days of Noah. Who would ever think of that? Never would you think of something like that. You mean to tell me that mountains could recede? They could just melt? They could just dissolve like like water and just recede away? He says that might even happen. But he says, let me tell you what will never happen. He says, my loving kindness will not be removed from you. Amen. I'll never take my love away. God doesn't sit in heaven with a divine bouquet and say, I love him, I love him not, I love him, I love him not. He loves you. He loves you. His love is there for you. And what he does is he comes and he reconciles all your failures. I I don't know if you read, um, it had happened just a few weeks ago. There's a guy down in Corpus Christi, uh, Texas. I've just lost a family. Uh, they Navy, he's a Navy pilot. And they've just moved from our church to, uh, from Jacksonville to Corpus Christi. And I was looking at this article. I'm going to give him a call and say, hey, this wasn't you. There was a, there was a guy that went to work on an ATM machine. Now, I'm not talking about one of those little things that you see in the grocery store. I'm talking about the big ones, the multiple big room. They've got that big vault on the thing. He had gone into service. Service guy had walked into this ATM, the back of the deal. He'd gone in, got in there, got into the room, got in there to service the machine, and the door shut behind him. Now the, now the key that he had is no good on the inside. It only works on the outside. Uh, you don't need a key on the inside to get to the out. Well, I guess you do. I guess they discovered that. Well, he got in there and the door shut on him and he could not get out of the thing. Now he's in a vault, so he's screaming at the top. This is not Barney in the little Mayberry you know, vault and they can hear him on the inside. He's in a genuine vault and nobody can hear him. He's in there and he discovers, I've left my cell phone in the car. He's stuck in this vault and he looks around and he thinks, what can I do? All he can do is he's got little scraps of paper and he's got a pen and he writes a note, please help me, I'm stuck in this vault. And he puts them out through the, where you get the little receipt that shoots out, you know. He sticks them out through there and do you know what people do? They laugh at it. They think it's a joke. And for hours, the guy is stuck in his vault. And the, and the people are simply laughing at his plea for help. Let me tell you tonight. That's where somebody here tonight is. You're locked in a vault of sin. And the world simply laughs at your predicament. God comes and he reconciles you to himself. And if I had another 30 minutes, I'd talk about how the the fact that Paul says, since we've been reconciled to God, we, we have what now? The ministry. Some of y'all need to be reconciled to one another tonight. Isn't it sad when you find that judges from the outside of the church have to come in and intervene between Christians? Because the word of God says, if you're saved, part of your salvation means You are reconciled to God and you are reconciled to each other. I don't need anybody to reconcile me to somebody else that's in the faith. God's already done that. I'm going to hit a point here in a moment. Y'all going to stand up and shout. 
So I'm going to keep preaching until you do. Here we go. Let me give you the third thing here. And the third thing is this, is listen, God replaces your failures. Now let me get to the last. And he's going to use a third picture here. And the third picture is that of a city. No longer a woman, woman who could not bear a child, a woman who was unfaithful to her husband. But now he comes and he speaks to Israel as if she's a, a city because Isaiah is writing to the, those Jews that would leave Babylon, or really it's Persia at that time, and they go back those 800 miles to the city of Jerusalem, which is totally, completely destroyed. All you got to do is pick up the book, Nehemiah, and read the first chapter. And you'll see the generation that Isaiah is writing to right here. They leave Persian captivity, which had been Babylonian. They had been in Babylonian captivity. The Persians overtook the Babylonians. And here are the Jews stuck in the middle of all of that. Seventy years is accomplished, according to the Old Testament. And God, through Cyrus, God uses, God can use a pagan king. I just came from the White House. I won't say anything else. I did. I was at the White House last week. They asked me to come. Anyway, what are we doing? Here, Cyrus says to the people of God, because God's using this pagan king, and he says to Cyrus, let these people go. And Cyrus lets the Hebrews go back to Jerusalem. They go back to Jerusalem, and they find it destroyed. Utterly destroyed. The temple is gone. The walls are gone. The gates are burned. It's Nehemiah chapter 1. And listen to what he says. He says, you feel like that city. That's what you feel like. He says, oh afflicted one, verse 11. You're storm tossed. You're not comforted. I don't have any doubt that I'm not preaching to folks tonight that you feel like that's exactly where I am. I feel afflicted. I feel like I've been wounded. Not only that, but I feel like my life is being thrown from this side to that side and back to this side again. And I can't be comfortable. No one can comfort you. Nobody can speak to you a word that seems to be a comfort to you. And so the prophet comes and he says two things. God replaces that. That's what salvation. I'm talking to you about salvation. What is salvation? God has relocated all your sin. He has now come to the place where he has reconciled you with God. And now he comes and he replaces all your failure, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the woundedness in your life. He comes, and this is the first thing that he does right here. He says, I am going to take your devastation and I'm going to rebuild it with my wealth. Whatever it is that has devastated you, God says, I'm going to rebuild your life. Verse 11, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. You know what antimony? Antimony is a, it's a metallic mineral uh, that is like a semi-precious ground up stone. In other words, let me, let me read this and tell you what he's saying. I'm going to set your stones. I'm going to rebuild your life. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to rebuild your house. Your stones I'm going to set. The mortar is going to be antimony. There's a guy who just bought a Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce, uh, vows that it has the blackest paint to put on a car of any car company in the world. That it is absolute black. And they'll take one of those half a million dollar Rolls Royces and they will spray paint it. Well, there was a guy who ordered one and sent them a thousand diamonds to crush and to sprinkle in that paint so that when they spray painted that car and they brought it out into the sun, it would just sparkle all over. Now, can you imagine that? That's what God says he's doing with your life. He says, I'll take the blocks of your life. And he says, the mortar is going to be pure antimony. It will be precious stone. He says, I'll rebuild it. Stop trying to rebuild what only God can rebuild. We try to put all of our lives back together and all the pieces of life back together. 
And we never do the job quite right when God says, part of your salvation is that I will rebuild the devastation of your life. But then he comes and he says, I'll take the insecurities of your life and replace it with my strength. Listen to what he says here. Verse 14, in righteousness, you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you'll not fear. Terror's not going to come to you. It's not going to come near you. See the insecurity that is that we're afraid. We've been defeated. We've been captured. We've been overrun once. We, we're timid. We're shy. We're afraid. What do you do when you fail? Well, somebody's going to say, well, you know, if you fail, try, try again. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you fail, I'm not ever doing that again. You're never going to catch me doing that again. I'm never going through that hurt again. I'm never going through that struggle again. Never going through that torture again. I just quit. And, And our failure just breeds insecurity in our lives so that, you know what we do? We withdraw. We just withdraw. I, I find people all the time, pastor, that have been hurt in a church and they've just withdrawn from the church fellowship. They just draw back. They just, they just go off into a corner somewhere and just exist. Same thing in love. I love somebody and they hurt me. I'm never going. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody tell me I am never going to love somebody again. I'm never going to trust somebody. I'm never going to go in another church again. I'll never trust another pastor again. I'll never, you know, this, that, or the other again. And it's the insecurity. And it's a way we say, I just withdraw because I don't want to hurt again. And God comes and he says, I'm going to take all that insecurity in your life and I'm going to replace it with my strength. You don't have to feel. Listen to what he says. This is your salvation, folks. You do not have to fear. Terror is not going to come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. You can be sure that if you are hurt, it is not God doing that. I have so many people come to me and say, I did something. I feel like God's just paying me back. Listen, listen to what he says. God doesn't do that. All your punishment fell on the guy in chapter 53. There's a difference between disciplining a child and punishing a child. My punishment fell on Jesus. He comes and he says to you, whoever is saying, it's not from me because I myself, now listen to this, have created the smith who blows the fire of coals. And brings out a weapon for its work. Did you hear what he just said? He says, for every one of you that have trusted me, I have had a weapon made specifically to protect you. That's just good. God's got something to guard your life with. And he brings out this weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Even if it is a Baptist tongue. That's a little loose translation. But that, look, look what it says. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. What's my heritage? That God is going to take care of me. He's going to take care of you. No matter what comes against you, no matter what happens in your life, God ultimately has the final say-so over it. Now, folks, do you, do you see what I've done? I've tried to show you God's grace in the Old Testament. It's free. It came through this person in chapter 53 who's the suffering servant who went and paid for our transgressions. He went and did that. And in doing that, what that means in my life is this. He has relocated all my sin, all my guilt, all my failures over to Jesus Christ. He has reconciled me to God and now he has replaced it 
replace the brokenness in my life, my broken heart, my broken mind, my broken whatever it is. He has replaced it and he has come and he has assured me that I don't need to be insecure anymore because his strength is my strength. Now I told you a moment ago, now listen, where are you going to get that? Isn't that good news? You know anybody that that would benefit? Did it benefit you? Well, then let me tell you, you know somebody else it'll benefit. And who else is going to do that for you? I got a week and a half ago, I got, uh, Debbie comes in. She said, uh, the White House has contacted you and they want you to come. And I sat this past week in the seat of power. Not me, but I sat there where the seat of power is. I looked down on this wall, and there was a famous portrait of a young George Washington. I looked on this wall over here, and there was that famous bust of Thomas Jefferson. And I sat there in that place, and I thought, what good is all of this apart from Jesus? No matter what they can do for me, No matter what they offer me, what good is any of it without Jesus? It can't save me. It can't rebuild a broken life. None of that. That's our gospel. That's what you and I have got to understand because that's the gospel we are to take to this world. I don't know if you heard, but uh, week before last in uh, Panama City, <clears throat> on the other coast of Florida, um, unusual event took place. We've got a video of it. I want to show you right here. <clears throat> there were two boys that went out, got off about a hundred yards out. Their mama sees them, and uh, like a mother, she looks at them. And she's telling them, come back in, come back in. And they're kind of panicked. It's gonna, we're gonna, you're going to see it here in a minute. Um, <clears throat> right there. You see, see those, stop it right there, guys. Can you stop that? Well, those guys that were out there, there were about 10 of them out there. Those two little boys were out there and their mama, Roberta uh, Ursary, told them, come in, come in, come in. And the boy, she could tell they were panicked. They were caught in a riptide. And so she realizes what's happening. She takes off out there to get those boys. When she takes off, here comes several more family members until they get about six of them out there. With the two boys, they've got eight. They are all trapped in the riptide. Two men on the beach see what's happening. They take off out there to get them. All ten of them get caught in the riptide. The people standing on the shore are watching this and there are 10 folks that are struggling to stay afloat and they're going to go down because they're not going to get out that riptide. And then all of a sudden, look at what happens. Can you stop it right there again? They start making a human chain. Now they didn't walk up and say, well, now tell me, you know, did, did you graduate from the University of Virginia or Virginia Tech before I get in this line? Are you white or are you black? Before I get in this line, uh, what's your salary? What's your socioeconomic level? Before I get, what kind of house do you live in? What kind of car do you drive? They didn't do that. They all just got together and decided we're going to form this human chain. You can roll it now and watch. Here they come. They start pulling them all in right there. And they pull those 10 people in. Not a single one of them drowned that day. Because of that chain. Do you know what that chain is? That's you. That's this church. That chain is the church. We are the chain. And God intends those of us who've experienced that salvation that I've just walked you through in Isaiah 54, what he's done in your life, he expects us to be that chain that joins together, that reaches out into this riptide here of sin and start just pulling those folks in to life. Now that 
is what God has called us to do. Don't misread the blueprint. Let's stand up. Let's bow our heads. And I want to give you the invitation tonight. Maybe you're here tonight. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ. I've just told you what Jesus Christ will do in your life. The first thing is, is he takes away your sin. He deals with the stain of sin and guilt in your life. In fact, his word says that he buries it in the depth of the sea and he remembers it no more. He puts it away from him as far as the east is from the west. Somebody here tonight, listen, that's good news. You need that. God's speaking to your heart about your own personal salvation. You can't find it anywhere else except in Jesus Christ. But tonight, Monday night, in August, the end of July, we're the church. And we need to understand what salvation is about. Because we've been called to be the chain to go out and to share that salvation with people who are caught in sin. Now that's what we're to do. We can't get around that. How long has it been since you talked to somebody about Jesus? How long has it been since you shared what I just explained to you with somebody else? People know that something is wrong in their lives. People know that something is missing, that something is out of whack. And they have no place to turn. Not the television, not the government, not the mall. The only person who has that answer is you. And God's called you to be a chain of life, to reach out to someone who's drowning in sin. Maybe tonight you need to begin to say, God, help me take that seriously. I'm going to call you to come and commit yourself to do that. To say, I'm praying for my church. I am praying for God to enlarge and grow our church. For God to keep harm away from our staff and God to keep harm away from our congregation. And I'm going to pray and ask for God to reconcile people who are upset and yet call themselves reconciled to God. Father, in these moments, as we have just a few brief moments of invitation, do what only you can do. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Your head's bowed. Our singers are going to sing. God speaking. You come.